Open your Bibles, please, this morning to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. We're going to read as an opening text, chapter 5, in its entirety. It's only 14 verses. But then we are going to stay there and look at some other issues and things that are involved in what is going on here. The message for this morning is the hope of revival. Second Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 1. Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated. And the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant out of, of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Wherefore, all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast, which was in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, these did the priests and the Levites bring up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord into his place to the oracle of the house into the most holy place even under the wings of the cherubims. Now you may or may not know this, but inside the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, there were monstrous cherubim that stood on each side of the, of the room uh, with their backs against the wall and their wings almost touched in the middle. And it was under that that the Ark of the Covenant was set. They drew out the staves of the ark, that the ends of the staves were seen from the ark before the oracle, but they were not seen from without, and there it is unto this day, that is, unto the day that the historian wrote the book. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did, did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Heman, of Jeduthun, of their, and their, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets." came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, His mercy endureth forever. 
that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Let's pray. Father, bless to our hearts and minds the reading of your word. Guide us as we undertake to study it, I pray. Lead us in what you would have us to say and think. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When the workmen finished the great temple of Solomon, and the great temple of Solomon was one of the grandest buildings that it ever has ever been built on the face of the planet. It wasn't the largest, uh, wasn't the most expensive, but uh, in its time it was the grandest of the buildings that had ever been built. It was dedicated with a grand ceremony. So many animals were sacrificed that they lost count, thousands of them. No one could reckon the number. The Spirit of God was poured out in a way that rivaled the dedication of the original tabernacle because this is exactly what had happened in the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness when they had built it. The glory of God had come and filled the house so that no human could stay in it. This moment, this moment of dedication at, on this day, was in many ways the very epitome, the, the highest pinnacle that Israel ever reached. They controlled virtually all of the land that had been promised to Abraham. God Himself has come and approved of their worship and received it in a visible way. There was no mistaking the fact that the God of heaven was pleased with what they were doing and pleased with their worship, pleased with this building. And besides that, a mighty and wise king sat on the throne. It seemed to them that all of the promises that they had looked for, all that they had hoped for, from the inception of their nation, was realized. It also seemed to them and you can't blame them for it seeming that way to them, that it was possible that these blessings were going to go on and on and on forever. That sounded in their ears like what God had said. There will not fail a son of David to sit upon the throne of Israel. It seemed that they were invincible. And they were on that day. They were invincible. There was not a force on the face of the planet that could have defeated Solomon and his army. It just wasn't going to happen. But Solomon, in his wisdom, anticipated that things were not always going to be that way. In fact, in chapter 6, there is a long and elaborate prayer that Solomon prayed concerning the future. And he knew that not everything was going to be rosy going forward. In chapter 6, beginning at verse 24, we're going to drop down into part of his prayer. We're not going to read the whole thing, although it would do you well this evening since you're not going to be at church. You can go back and read all three of these chapters and fill yourself in on what we're leaving out this morning. But as a part of the prayer, beginning at verse 24 of Second Chronicles 6, 
And if thy people Israel be put to the worse before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall return and confess thy name and pray and make supplication before thee in this house, then hear thou from heaven. Now, Solomon isn't giving God orders. It sounds that way to us in the English. This is petition. This is prayer. This is request. We could put please in front of each one of these things. Then please hear thou from heaven, and please forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and please bring them again into the land which thou gavest to them and their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against thee. See, Solomon knew what was going to happen. Yet if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou dost afflict them, then please hear thou from heaven and please forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel when thou hast taught them the good way wherein they should walk and send rain upon thy land which thou hast given unto thy people for an inheritance. If there be dearth in the land, if there be pestilence, if there be blasting or mildew, locusts or caterpillars, if their enemies besiege them in the cities of their land, whatsoever sore, whatsoever sickness there be, then what prayer or what supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all thy people Israel, when everyone shall know his own sore and his own grief and shall spread forth his hands in this house, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and render and every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men, that they may fear thee to walk in thy ways, so long as they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. And then look at verse 34. If thy people go out to war against our enemies by the way, and thou shalt send them, and they pray unto thee toward this city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou from, heaven, from the heavens their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man which sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives unto a land far off or near, yet if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captive, and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and dealt wickedly, if they return to thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, whither they have carried them captives and pray toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, and toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. You see, Solomon knew that many of these people standing there that day participating in the celebration did not truly love God with their whole hearts. His own children, one of whom would be his heir to the throne, he knew were not all faithful servants of God. He knew that the future was not as rosy as it seemed like it must be on that glorious day. God's response is found in chapter 7. You've probably heard this passage many times. Verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night. This is after all of this is over with. And said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. 
if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. In this great answer of God, the hope of revival and renewal after times of spiritual decline was established in the hearts of God's people forever. You see, the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of these people in Jerusalem that were present for these dedication services were going to serve false gods. Some of them were even going to take their own children and offer them as live sacrifices to idols, if you can imagine such a thing. Oh, yes, we can, can't we? Time and again, just as they had done under the judges before the days of the kings, they were going to go into sin, desiring to be like the nations that were around them. The kingdom is going to be divided under Solomon's son. The northern kingdom is going to have one long succession of wicked men as their leaders who are going to lead them into idolatry and wickedness and immorality and all kinds of ungodliness. Until finally, during the Assyrian Empire, they will be carried away captive, never to be heard from again. It's still a sort of a mystery in the history of man, the lost tribes of Israel. Why? Because they're lost. They carried them away captive. They disappeared. They're not around anymore. Never heard from again. The southern kingdom is going to keep descendants of David on the throne, but they're going to be a mixed bag. Some of them will be excellent, but many will be as wicked as the kings of the northern kingdom. On a number of occasions, good men will come to power in the south, which came to be called Judah, while the north was called Israel. Men like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Hezekiah, Uzziah, and others. They would remind Israel from time to time of their sins. They would lead them to repentance. And at times to the claiming of the great promise that God had made to Solomon. Finally, though, they also were carried away captive for their idolatry and for their disobedience to God, both in the leadership and among the common people. Now, fortunately, ultimately, at least a remnant of them were restored to the land, but they were only ever just a dim shadow of what they were on this great day when Solomon led this dedication. There is evidence that they remembered and claimed the great promise in captivity. If you will remember, under the reign of Darius the Persian, Daniel is thrown into a den of lions for what? For praying with his window open toward Jerusalem, which meant he was remembering the promise that God had made to Solomon and was claiming for his people 
the benefits of that promise, which were ultimately realized under Nehemiah. Fast forward 400 years from the captivity to the ministry of Jesus. For three and a half years, He decried the awful spiritual state of Israel until finally they conspired together with the Romans and killed Him. After His resurrection, He ascended back to heaven, but He left His disciples with a command and a promise. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of My Father upon ye, on you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The fulfillment of the promise of Jesus was one of the most powerful events that ever occurred on this planet. It is reminiscent in some ways of this great day of dedication of the temple. Because what I don't have really time to go into is that if you read the book of Ezekiel, you will find that the Lord shows him a vision while he's in captivity, carries him backward in time, if you will, and shows him a time when the Spirit that had descended upon the temple, there on this day we read about in Second Chronicles 5, begins to move first out to the doorpost and finally out to the gate and finally to the gate of the city and finally then to the uh, Mount of Olives and finally departs. And when Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilt, the, rebuilt that dim copy of Solomon's temple, there is no story about the Spirit of God returning. The Spirit of God doesn't return to the Temple Mount until the day of Pentecost, and it doesn't return again upon the Jewish religion, but upon the Christian one. But it was a profound day, Acts chapter 2. I never get tired of reading what happened here. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all, that is the, the 120 of the faithful that had stayed at Jerusalem in a prayer meeting, by the way, were all with one accord in one place. You know, some people have remarked that second only to the miracle of the Holy Spirit falling was we have 120 Christians all in one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled and said one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And now how, we, how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? But there was even something else if you'll look down to verse 41. Peter preached and it says, they that gladly received His Word were baptized. The same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So the church went from 120 
to 3,120 in one day. That was an amazing day. Going forward, the Lord would visit His people in power again and again. At Jerusalem, at Ephesus, at Corinth. In fact, almost every place that the apostles went. There was a powerful visitation of the Spirit of God upon those cities. We talked about the decay that happened after the great day of dedication. Within 70 years of this great day of Pentecost, the Lord was rebuking before, through the pen of John some of His churches, calling upon them to repent and to return to Him and do the works they had done at the beginning. He even threatened two of them with total excommunication as His churches if they refused to hear Him. Ephesus, which was maybe the best, and Laodicea, which was maybe the worst, both of them were threatened. He's going to cast them out. I will spew you out of my mouth, he said. I will remove your candlestick, he said to Ephesus, except you repent. We have no doubt but that some did repent, and probably others did not. In the history of Christianity since the first century, has been one long, uneven road. I wish it had all been victory. I wish it had all been glory. I wish that, like the Jews wish, that that day could have just been preserved in eternity forever, on and on and on. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that day of Pentecost could just have been preserved as an ongoing event? But it wasn't. It's not God's plan. And I've learned not to question God about His plans. He's a lot smarter than I am. There have been great departures from God and horrible consequences for those departures, both for Christianity itself as well as for the world. But there have also been great awakenings and great revivals as God's people would find themselves in a state of decline and give themselves to prayer and remember this principle that is established in the prayer, in the answer to Solomon's prayer. Now I realize that prayer was very specific about a specific nation, about a specific event. I realize the answer was given to a specific prayer. But the principle that is contained in that prayer, if my people, if my people, God has always honored. He's always honored it. He's never come back to His people and said, no, that was just for Solomon, that was just for Israel, that's not for you. That principle that God established there has always been honored by Him. If my people, the great revivals have come at times of great decline, both in the church and in the culture. No matter where we find the records of these awakenings, whether in America or Germany, Ireland or Wales, we find always two consistent things. Now, there are many things that are different about them. It's interesting to go through them and look at them and analyze them and look at the differences. But there are things that are always the same. One is a general weakness of spirituality in the churches of Christianity together with a great moral decline 
in the world at large. And I believe, and I hope you do as well, that one is related to the other. When the church thrives, the world does better. Now, the world is always wicked. But when the church thrives, the world does better. And when the church is in decline, so is the world. There are times of greater and lesser wickedness even among the unbelievers. It's interesting to go back and read the history of the founding of our country and read some of the principles that some men who were unbelievers believed and lived by. Some of them I stand in amazement. I say, how could a person be this smart and not be a believer? The world does better when the church prospers. So one of the things that's always consistent before great revivals is a general weakness of spirituality. And the second thing is an unusual and growing concern among faithful Christians that is so profound that they will give themselves to regular extended times of prayer both in private and in groups. They will cry out to God for His help they will thoroughly examine their own personal lives. They will put away their sins and give themselves in renewal to God. It's almost like a revival happens before the revival. On many occasions, God has been pleased to bless their efforts and answer their prayers. I do not know of one revival which has not been preceded by Protracted, earnest, diligent prayer by some of the people of God. Sometimes it's not very many, but some. There was only 120 at Pentecost. The Isle of Lewis in 1947, there was only two. Two old widows who couldn't do anything else but pray for their people. There are certain things that are beyond question. Number one, it is God's purpose, His revealed purpose, that His churches prosper spiritually. Now, I'm not here to preach financial prosperity because God has brought poverty upon many of His churches. And He's blessed and revived many of His churches without prospering them financially. It's not about financial prosperity. It's about spiritual prosperity. That's why the Holy Spirit was poured out. Why was the Holy Spirit poured out? So they would prosper. So the 120 could be 3,120. And a few days later be 8,120. That's why. So that the church would prosper. The letters of Paul and John and Peter and others were written so that the churches would prosper. It was to lead them to spiritual prosperity. The language used by the Lord Jesus Christ in the 
letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to describe the things that he desired to give to his servants speak of spiritual blessedness. Listen to some of the things that he some of the phrases. He said, I will give you to eat of the tree of life. I will give you a crown of life. I will give you to eat of the hidden manna. You shall be clothed in white raiment. And to Laodicea, the worst probably of all the seven churches, he still said, I want to give you gold tried in the fire, white raiment that you may not be naked, and I salve so that you can see. As bad off as Laodicea was, the Lord Jesus Christ was saying, I want you to prosper. I want you to be spiritually well. I want you to do okay. That's the first thing that is certain. God wants His people to prosper. The second is God has proven that His promise to Solomon is good across all time frames to all kinds of people and is very generous concerning the flaws and faults of various groups. He has fallen in power upon the Moravians, upon the Presbyterians, upon the Baptists, upon the Methodists, upon independents, and others as well. See, God never did buy in on our denominational scheme. And the Holy Spirit never has recognized it when He's come in power. He just doesn't pay any attention to it. He falls on true believers who dare to take Him up on the terms of His promise. The churches and the culture around us, including ourselves, need God's help. That's the third thing that is clearly true. The churches and the culture around us, including ourselves, need God's help to renew and restore us, to awaken us to our sins and to our duties. The only uncertainty, these things are certain, The uncertainty in the equation. The if in the equation is if my people. There's no if with God. God says, I will. The uncertainty is with man. If my people. Will the people of God dare to be so audacious as to seize the promise under the terms of it. Now, this is not an unconditional promise. It's a conditional promise. It's not unconditional. If my people, first of all, you've got to belong to Him. Do you belong to Him? Are you His? I mean His by confession. His by Belief, his by faith, his by repentance, his by fully embracing. Are you his? But you're called by my name. Do you go by his name? Are you known as Christian to your family, to your workers, your co workers, to your neighbors, to your friends? Do they know you as Christian? They were called Christians. First at Antioch, 
They didn't start calling themselves Christian. Other people start calling them Christian. Oh, you 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 one of those people who believes in Christ. Shall humble themselves. That's a powerful word if you look at it. It means to bring low. To bring low. To cast down. You know, we throw all kinds of folks under the bus. We don't like politicians. There's all kinds of other people we don't like. We throw them under the bus. We don't like them. We we cast them low. Or do we cast ourselves low before God? Humble ourselves. Acknowledge our sins. Acknowledge our weakness. Acknowledge our need. We don't like to be needy. I don't. I'll work all day doing something myself rather than ask somebody to do it. That's just the way I'm wired. I'm sorry. That's just the way I'm wired. I don't like to be needy. I don't like to have to ask for help. I don't like it. And pray. Not every once in a while. Earnestly. Diligently. Faithfully. Pray. You pray. How many minutes a week? Five? Ten? How many hours a week? You pray? I mean, really? Do you pray? Seems American Christian Christendom goes to all kinds of extraordinary means to avoid prayer meetings. Almost think you were inviting somebody to a tooth pulling, start inviting people to a prayer meeting. We need to become very familiar with prayer meetings if we're ever going to know revival. I have to become familiar with them. Say, well, I don't know how to pray. Learn how. Learn how. I don't know where to start. Just start. Start with the Lord's Prayer. Start where Jesus said start. My Father who is in heaven, holy is Your name. Just sit on that one for a while. Sit on that one until you can weep over the holiness of God. Start somewhere. Pray, He said. And seek My face. What does that mean? Well, I think it means stay at it until you have My attention. See, God doesn't always just jump when we say jump. We say frog. He doesn't say how high. He sometimes lets us get serious about prayer before He starts paying attention. At least in any way that's observable to us. Seek My face, He said. Stay with it till you truly have an audience with Me. Be faithful and diligent. Insistent like I taught you. Remember, He told us the story of the unjust judge. 
refused to hear the woman's petition, but because she troubled him. And Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge said. Listen. Seek my face. And uh-oh, turn from their wicked ways. <clears throat> their wicked ways. We like to get upset about the sins of other people. We like to run people down for their wickedness. And believe me, all wickedness is wicked. We need to start at home. Jesus said, start with the beam that's in your own eye. Turn from their wickedness. You see, it's not the sins of everybody else that's keeping you from revival. It's yours and mine. That's what's holding us back. That's what our problem is. It's not everybody else being wicked. Then will I. Wow. Then will I. Three more exciting words have never been spoken nor heard. Then will I, says God. God moving on the behalf of His people in answer to their prayers. We don't know anything about that, do we? We don't know much about that. History proves that it doesn't take many. It doesn't take a whole crowd. It doesn't take several thousand. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Verse 19. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where, there are, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It's not the gathering together. It's the gathering together in His name. There's the secret. There's the troubling part. Truly in submission to Him. Truly in terms of His great promise. Truly in a way not only as far as our own internal commitment to repentance is concerned, but also our commitment to unity to one another and our mutual concern one for another. There am I in the midst. It doesn't take a crowd. I'm not daunted by the fact that just a few will be meeting this week for prayer. I'm, I'm not concerned about that. That's not a problem. God has shown Himself over and over again entirely capable of answering the prayers of such a small group in a mighty way. It's our problem with preparation. It's our problem with believing Him. Do you have a picture in your mind of what an awakening would be? Can you imagine it? you imagine it? Can you imagine our church being so full that this room and the other one would be filled, standing room only, people to hear the gospel? I've even heard of churches where 
in the summertime at least, they'd have to open the windows. People stand around outside, outside the windows, so they could hear the gospel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine businesses having to close down because they have no customers? Because revival has come. Wouldn't matter what they showed down at the theater, there's nobody to show up to see it. Nobody show up. Can you imagine it? Because we're supposed to pray believing that we've received already what we ask. If we pray in faith. We need a picture of it in our minds. Our great spiritual poverty proves how difficult it is for two or three to agree on anything in the way that Jesus Christ is talking about here. But when we do, when we get to that place, God says, then will I. I hope you have a vision of revival. I hope you have a vision of an awakening. I hope your vision for the future is more than just a Republican getting reelected at the next election. Because I'm going to tell you, you can put all Republicans up there and we're still in trouble. We're still in trouble. Or you can throw them all out and put independence up there. We're still in trouble. We need the Lord. We need to call. We need to humble ourselves and pray. And seek His face. And turn from any wickedness that yet abides with us. And trust Him for what we need. I fear... We've lost the hope of revival. We have a wish for it, but I fear we've lost the hope for it. The purpose to have it, because the word hope, as used in Scripture, is a word that is very akin to the word faith. It's very close to it. It's a, it's a, it's a word that is not just a wish, but includes purpose. Oh, let us not lose the hope of revival. Because if we lose the hope of revival, we lose the hope that God will answer His prayers, answer our prayers. And if we think God will not answer our prayers, then who is this God that we're serving? Has He not shown Himself to be a God who answers the prayers of His people? May God help us. We have obstacles to overcome. We have challenges to meet. We have humility to learn. We have repentance to seek. But we have a mighty God who has given us a wonderful promise. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. May God heal our land. Amen.